Amen. Thank you, Linda. You're awesome, too. <laughs> Alrighty, if you have your Bibles, please open them to Colossians chapter 1. If you do not have your Bible, it'll be behind me on the screen. And we are going to start with verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. May God bless the reading of his word. So today we are going to go over... um, these verses, and Paul's continuing, Paul and Timothy are continuing on after that Christological hymn that we talked about a few verses ago. Um, And what does it mean for Christ to be preeminent? Well, last week we learned about what it meant for us, but there's more. There's always more when it comes to the gospel of Jesus. There's always more to learn, more to understand, more to, to grasp, so to speak. And so Paul continues on. He continues on after the knowledge of this Jesus Christ and what it means for him to have come um, with these verses. So verse 24. Now I rejoice in the sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Alrighty, so we come to a personal aspect of the letter. We notice that Paul reflects on his own sufferings. What is interesting to consider is the fact that Paul is rejoicing in his sufferings. Why is, that, why is that he is rejoicing? What is causing him to rejoice in suffering? Ultimately, he recognizes that his sufferings is for the sake of others. And because of this, he can rejoice knowing this. He then says something, I, I don't know if any of you caught this, he says something rather curious. And perhaps one of the most debated points of the entire book. And the question is, what does it mean when Paul says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction? One interpretation looks at it from the perspective of atonement, that Paul and others, when they are afflicted, further the atoning work of Christ. This, however, does not seem to be the best interpretation. Paul and Timothy both have argued and will argue that Christ's atonement is sufficient. There is no need for any other atonement at all because what Christ has done is supreme above all other atonement. And we saw that a few weeks ago. So instead, it makes more sense to interpret the passage as a way for Paul to recognize that his afflictions fill up what is reminiscent of a filling up what is necessary before the final coming. This kind of understanding of afflictions needing to occur is found all throughout the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Likewise, Paul understands his sufferings in light of Christ. Christ himself suffered and promised that those who followed after him would suffer in his name. Thus, the afflictions which Paul has, he recognizes, are tied to Christ. It is in his afflictions he identifies further with the suffering servant 
and rejoices over being able to suffer on behalf of the body of Christ and therefore Christ himself. I'm going to pause, Betsy. I didn't get to this further in the application points, and I repent of that (laughs) by saying something about it right now. Um, All right, so I just said that, okay, Paul had this understanding that, um, okay, he needed to suffer on behalf of the future coming. Thus, he had to fill up what was lacking because then the future event would happen. There's this Old Testament understanding and a New Testament understanding in which uh, God isn't going to do something until enough of something else has happened already. And where I think Paul is going with this is in Genesis when Abraham is said, said by to God, or no, God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you the land, but not yet. Why does he say not yet? Does anyone know? Mike, do you know? I'm looking at you. Because it wasn't time. Further, there's a further point. He says that the, the sins of the people of the land had not gotten to the point yet of being deserving of judgment. Um, and so you see this element that there has to be enough of something in order for God to react to it. And that's what I think Paul is saying here. That the suffering that he's having is that. It is furthering the coming of the kingdom. And I'll, when we suffer, we add to that further understanding of, okay, Christ is going to return. That's my guess. And I wanted to say something because I'm not going to talk about it <laughs> the rest of the time. It's a very complicated thing, but that's my, if I had to say, okay, if you asked me one day during a Q&A, what did Paul mean by that? That's what I would say. All right, so verse 25. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Paul, in a way, associates the proclamation of the gospel with the suffering which he has been through. In the previous verses, we saw Paul's understanding as a servant on behalf of the church through his suffering. Now it is further realized his service is further directed toward that which he has been called to minister to, and that is the stewardship he has received from God. He was specifically given a stewardship from God in order that he may give it to them. That is the word of God. Um, This all likely refers to his calling to be the apostle to the Gentiles. The word which was given to him was the gospel, especially concerning Gentiles. The coming of the Gentiles into the tree of Abraham seems to be the focus of these verses. It's part of the great mystery hidden for ages and generations. Ultimately, this truth has been revealed to the saints. The saints here could represent spiritual beings, but in context, it seems more likely to represent humans who have come to the faith, especially the apostles. So what does Paul say about this? Verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We now see the full extent of the mystery which has been revealed to his saints. Again, Paul stresses the truth that the mystery and its meaning are from God. This can be understood in the previous verses when Paul recognizes that he's the steward, making the word of God fully known. God is the one who provides the word, the mystery, and Paul simply proclaims it. As such, those who have been given the mystery share it freely, that among the Gentiles are the riches of the glories of this mystery even. Thus, the focus is again the inclusion of the Gentiles into the kingdom. They have been given Christ. 
that Christ is even in them, those who were once outside of the divine relationship, it's now part of the mystery. It's what has been revealed. Ultimately, though, we see that Christ is the one who is actually synonymous with the mystery. And that this mystery of Christ in them is the hope of glory. Thus Christ, the all-sufficient one, uh, is included the Gentiles into this kingdom. And that's something which for generations was considered only for Jews. Now, however, the covenant people are not identified by their Jewish ethnicity, but by Christ himself. And as such, this includes Jews and Gentiles. Verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone of all, with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is the proclamation of the apostles. The proclamation Paul himself has been making. The truth of Christ that all who have faith in him belong to him. In this, we see that there has been warning and teaching. Warning likely represents the possibility of false teachers. And so Paul and others have battled against false teachers, which would lead them away from Christ. Teaching represents the building up of the church into the further mystery of the cross of Christ and what it means. Thus, educating them with all wisdom, likely a reflection of the wisdom of God found previously in the verses. Um, The goal of this warning and this teaching is to present everyone mature in Christ. This maturity might be better understood in respect to the idea of bringing these individuals into a better and fuller understanding of Christ and all it means to be devoted to him. In this sense, then, the goal is for Paul and the apostles to bring them further into discipleship under Christ. This is done, as Christ said, through teaching, or by Paul said even through teaching, by warning against false doctrines and by teaching what is good, right, and true doctrines which lie in the wisdom of God. Now verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, and that he powerfully works within me. All of this leads Paul to reflect back on himself where he began. Just as he began these verses by describing his own ministry as an apostle, suffering for the sake of the body, so now he reflects further on his toiling. It is not for himself that he does it, but instead for the church, the body of Christ. That he struggles with all his energy reflects that Paul does not consider himself to be the greatest or most significant piece of the puzzle. While he may be the one who undergoes tribulations for the sake of the truth of the gospel, he recognizes it is not his own might which causes him to continue on in his labor. Instead, the energy, the power, is God's, which works within Paul. Thus, Paul likely knows his own weakness and the need for God to be the one who empowers him to continue on in his service. Alrighty. The main point of these verses are to reflect on a number of things. We see Paul's call to proclaim the gospel despite the hardships which accompany such a proclamation. Paul had suffered greatly and unjustly by being faithful, and in his faithfulness he sees he is able to identify with Christ himself, who suffered greatly for his own faithfulness to his father. Paul then describes what his purpose has been, and that is the edification of the church through the proclamation of the truth of the gospel, which has now been revealed. All right. 
in today's text, Paul and Timothy dealt with something which for us might not seem that significant, but in reality is very significant. What was it that they dealt with that could cause such a dichotomy? (laughs) The answer is the mystery which was revealed and which the apostles have been sharing, especially Paul. Yet what is so profound about this mystery? In order to answer that, we need to first remember what the mystery is. In truth, there is a great deal about the mystery of the gospel itself. In today's verses, we see a glimpse of part of the mystery, and that is how Gentiles are benefiting from the gospel. There is, however, even more to the mystery than Gentiles being included into the family tree of Abraham. In all honesty, the great mystery of the gospel, as I said previously, is Jesus Christ himself. His life, death, and resurrection were all part of the ground mystery. How is that the case? Well, when we consider the reality of the hymn in the previous verses, we realize that Jesus Christ is preeminent above all. We also learned how he is the visible image of the invisible God. Ultimately, Jesus himself, the great mystery which was revealed prior to his coming, his coming had not been assumed in this way. Um... The three parts of his life are evidence of this. His life of ministry. None expected the Messiah to be a servant to others. They all believed that he would be an emperor, a king, who would defeat all the foes of Israel. Jesus, however, he was a teacher. He was a prophet um, during his life. He did not raise up armies, nor did he command people to overthrow enemy adversaries, except for the mnemonic ones, of course. He even argued and debated points of the law with other teachers. And he presented his own way, which oftentimes, as we know, went against other teachers, other rabbis and priests. Yet that was not only, that is only part of the mystery. There is also his death. None expected the Messiah to be a man who would die by both Jews and Gentiles. Again, they expected the Messiah to put their enemies to shame and finally free them from the enemies who had cast them low. Instead, Jesus died. Not only did he die, but according to the scriptures, he was accursed because he was on a tree when he died. That's not all. For the mystery gets even more significant upon his resurrection. You see, what makes Jesus' story so unique and so believable is the fact that it's absolutely unbelievable during the time in Jewish thought. Most people do not realize that there were two elements of Jewish thought about individuals at this time when it came to life from death, um, or simply from death to life. The first is not actually called resurrection, but is instead called translation. Um, That is to say, the person does not die, but goes directly to heaven. In this, we think of Elijah, and some would consider Enoch another example. These individuals did not die, but were transported into heaven. Jesus, however, did not just enter into heaven, he also had a physical death. Now, the second concerns resuscitations. Um, In no point prior to Christ is there any belief in Jewish thought that anyone would be resurrected from death into everlasting life by themselves. What I mean is, there are moments when individuals were resurrected from death, but they eventually died again. We can think of uh, what happens with Elijah in 1 Kings 17 with the widow's son, and then Elisha had another experience like that in 2 Kings 4. 
or even Jesus' experience with Lazarus. Both and all of them were brought back to life, but then they also died again. They were what they called resuscitations. Likewise, when the Jewish people thought of resurrection, they had the understanding that it would be an eschatological event, an end times event, an event that would encompass all of the faithful into eternal life. This sounds like Jesus is true, but it's also not what happened with Jesus because in Jesus' case, he was the only one who was raised into eternal life. All of this comes with the deeper realization that Jesus' death was the way for God to abolish the ramifications of sin, which is death. This is done because of the sacrifice which we discussed last week. Through sacrifice, we find Jesus being the sacrificial lamb, through whose blood we find redemption. This was not expected from the Messiah, And something profound that was revealed upon his death, that through death he would defeat death. The mystery then goes further with the fact that it is through faith in what Christ has done we are able to find salvation. That through Jesus' death we no longer need to make sacrifices because our sins are atoned for completely through the supreme and total sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. This was not something the Jewish people even began to consider. And we see that even with Christian Jews who continued to sacrifice even after Jesus' death and resurrection. Most people don't realize that. (laughs) They actually continued to sacrifice. This then became another part of the mystery that was eventually revealed. And that was completely revealed in the book of Hebrews. Yet we also know that through Jesus' resurrection, we too will have our own resurrection. Because we have received the blood of Christ, which washes away our sins, we are now viewed as justified before God. And he is sanctifying us day by day through his spirit. Ultimately, if we have faith in Christ, then we too will rise because we are part of Christ. As Paul describes it today, we are his body, the church. And if Christ rose, so will his body through him. If all of this wasn't enough, there is an even more profound mystery which was revealed to the apostles, and that was that the Gentiles would become welcomed into the kingdom of the Son and would be freed from the kingdom of darkness. While there are elements within the prophets and the law which hinted at this happening, the truth was that this was not Something completely expected to occur. The Gentiles were, after all, evil by definition. Since they didn't even have the law to guide them, and they certainly went against the law they did have, which was the revealed created order, which called them to worship God, yet they instead worshiped the messenger. They worshiped nature itself. This final element is the one which is the most significant of today's text, and probably the most important for all of us here today. Yet it is the one which we often overlook, the one which we often simply take for granted, probably because we live 2,000 years after the fact. But why is it so important? And the answer lies in this question. How many of you are naturally Jewish? Naturally. How many of you were born into the Jewish inheritance? I'm half Jewish, and so I'm considered not even really that great. (laughs) Um, Anyone ever read Harry Potter? Mudblood. Uh, um, 
I'm just saying. I've never read Harry Potter, but I know that much. Anyway, the point is, everyone here is a Gentile. <laughs> everyone. This means that when Peter, Paul, and the other apostles thought about how detestable Gentiles were, they were thinking about people just like you. Um, the fact that you are a Christian and that God has brought you into the kingdom of his son through the blood of his son is a profound mystery that was ultimately revealed through the Spirit of God. It is and was an important truth which we need to make sure we understand. For whenever you read Gentile in the Bible, you have to point a finger back at yourself. It's you. You should always be thinking me when the Gentile um, word is used. So when Peter has that vision of all the nasty food, he's thinking about all of you. <laughs> um, sorry. Us. I should say us. I'll say us. Perhaps an analogy would be good. Um, imagine that there was a group of people which utterly appalled you. Whether they are in sexual immorality or violent or some other thing that just causes your stomach to turn. And what if God said, I'm going to make known my glory even among that group, the group you despise. That is exactly how it appeared to the Jewish Christians, to the apostles themselves, when God revealed the riches of his glory, of this mystery of Christ being in you. This then should cause two things to occur within us. The first thing should be great humility. It should continually place in our minds the reality that we are saved by grace. That when the apostles were surprised at the salvation coming to the Gentiles, they were surprised at us coming into salvation. It should remind us of our own imperfections, our failures, and our societal immorality. And how we have at one point contributed to all of these things. Thus, when we look at each others in their sin, we must not forget it is only by grace that we're not enslaved. Only by grace we do not act in the darkness the way that they do. That should then cause us a second thing to occur within us, and that is rejoicing. None of us were part of the kingdom of the Son previously. In fact, we were so far outside of the kingdom that even again the earliest Christians were surprised at our welcome. For that, we should be thankful we should praise God for his salvation and his amazing grace that has been given to us. Such a despicable people that we once were. When we consider then the mystery of the gospel, let it remind us that it is a glorious thing. When Paul says, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The riches of glory are in you. If you are in Christ. Christ, he is the mystery. And with him comes all the glory. Whether the glory here and now. Or the hope of glory of things to come. So be at peace. With the mystery of the gospel. Knowing that the mystery, Christ. Has been revealed and has been proclaimed. And has brought redemption. For all of those who place their faith in him. It's a wonderful thing. Alright. I have to apologize. I did not expect to write what I wrote here. It ended up being very, very thick. <laughs> is the best way to describe it. Um, you ever have a book 
that's really like that deep and you put it down on the table and it makes the table break. That might be what this point is. I don't know yet. We'll find out. All right, here we go. Let's do it. Let's just jump in. In today's text, Paul specifically states that one of the purposes that he and others have had is warning and teaching in the church. I find it interesting that he uses these two terms in order to describe the role that he has been and has had. For it implies that knowledge is being dispersed. Not only knowledge, but wisdom and understanding as well. This then should lead us to a further question. What are the reasons that it is necessary for such warnings and teachings? Why are they warning and teaching? Not too long ago, I read two works by Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga. They were featured in the Staub Lectures, which are lectures in which one individual was asked to come and speak at um, Calvin College. And they have had Christian ethicists, Christian apologists, Christian philosophical theologians come and speak. Well, at one point, Plantinga was asked to speak, and so he named his two lectures the Twin Pillars of Christian Scholarship, like a philosopher would do. <laughs> um, and the question that Plantinga wanted to discuss was, are there reasons for Christian scholarship? If so, what are the reasons? Now, he names, obviously, two in particular that I believe hold true to what Paul is saying today about warnings and teachings. Now, consider what Plantinga says at the end of the first lecture. And this is going to be a long quote. I apologize, but it's really good. I really like it. You might not. At the beginning of my talk, I promised two reasons why Christian scholarship is the first importance for the Christian community. The first reason is now obvious. Clearly, the Christian community needs what I shall call Christian cultural criticism. This reason is rooted in our historical situation, given its immersion in the sort of cultural culture in which we find itself, the Christian community sorely needs this cultural criticism, this testing of the spirits. And of course, it is the Christian scholarly community in which this responsibility most directly falls. Christian scholars have an obligation to discern, to discern and analyze these perspectives to plumb the full extent of their influence, to recognize the way in which they underlie vast stretches of contemporary intellectual life, to know how they manifest themselves in the intellectual projects and pursuits that are currently fashionable. We have an obligation to point out what we see, to react to it, to comment upon it. We must be aware of the broadly religious conflict in which scholarship is enmeshed. The Christian scholarly community must test the spirits to see what comes ultimately from God, the source of truth, and what comes from other sources. We need deep, penetrating, thoughtful, informed analysis of various cultural movements and forces we encounter to go with the crowd, to accept and take for granted what we find around us can lead us away from the Lord, away from an integral and unified Christian way of looking at the world. This, therefore, is the first reason why we need Christian scholarship. So, long, long quotation. And some of you may be wondering, 
Why are you quoting Christian philosophers to us? The answer is because the very first thing we saw Paul discussing about this is what Alvin Plantinga just said. Warnings. To warn. What does it mean to warn others in the church? Why are warnings necessary for us? Planiga recognizes that it is necessary for Christian scholarship to thrive, that churches should be encouraging it, because this scholarship will be able to warn others of the thoughts of the world around us, which may permeate into the Christian faith, and it shouldn't. What he calls having cultural criticism is the ability to look at the culture, to look at all things of the culture, scientific and otherwise, and discern what it is that the culture believes, and be able to explain the difference. Paul, when he says he and others warn the church, is saying the exact same thing. There were, no, there were false teachers which were circulating the Christian church from shortly after its inception on to today's current day. Paul recognized his own responsibility as an apostle, as a teacher, to warn about these false teachings, to warn the church not to follow them, to do exactly what Alvin Plantinga says Christian scholarship is to do and to be. And it's because of this I quoted Plantinga above, because I agree that Christian scholarship must be used to discern what the world is saying, to test the spirits. But the truth is it doesn't end with scholarship. It ends with us being informed of us being warned, of you being warned, and I being warned, and what is around us and how it is different from that which we find in the faith. So some might find it a bad thing when a pastor comes up and says, beware false teachers like Joel Osteen, or beware false teachers like Benny Hinn. They teach things which are contrary to the Christian faith. They do not teach the gospel, and so they teach an American dream wrapped up in religious talk. What do such individuals teach? A prosperity gospel so far from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be warned against this teaching. This teaching states that God wants to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise, and that's it. This is not the truth of the gospel of Jesus. All right, I just gave a warning. I warned against particular false teachers and their false teachings. Now the question is, is that enough? Um, The answer Paul says is no, it's not enough. Interestingly enough, Planiga also wrote about this very same thing in his Staub lectures. Planiga, at the end of the second lecture, says the following. By way of conclusion, then, I wish to add my voice to the voices of those who call for Christian scholarship. The scholarship has at least two important parts, the criticism I mentioned the last time, and also the positive application of what we know by faith to central areas of science and scholarship. What Plantinga essentially argued is that we need Christian scholars in all fields, whether they be psychology, ethics, philosophy, mathematics, science, etc., who will think about these things and these elements of scholarship in light of being in Christ, in light of what Christ has done. In other words, the twin pillars for Planiga is to be critical of what is being taught and said around us, but also to provide an answer. The challenge, to challenge the status quo, while at the same time giving reasonable answers in response. How does this apply with what Paul said? 
Well, consider what Paul said. Paul said warnings, these warnings against the spirits of the age, warnings against false teachers who would lead us astray with their talk. However, there's also teaching. For not only are we to have warnings, but we are also to be taught. We need teachings. We need to know what is false, but we also need to know what is right and true. Just as Planiga argues above, so Paul argued 2,000 years ago. So, I gave a warning against the prosperity gospel earlier. It is right to warn. However, it is not enough to warn. If I say, be aware of these false teachings, it wouldn't be enough. Why? Because you also need to know, be taught what is true. If the prosperity gospel is wrong, is an incorrect view of the gospel, then what is the right view? Well, the gospel of Jesus, we find forgiveness of sins, the redemption through Christ. You are no longer enslaved to seeking the things of the world like what will make you just, healthy, wealthy, and wise in worldly standards. Instead, you are redeemed from these things. The prosperity gospel teaches what all people want to hear in order to have all of their desires here and now, their best life now. The gospel of Jesus teaches people what they need to hear in order to gain salvation, in order to have eternal life. I find it interesting. In today's text, we even see an individual discuss his own afflictions for the sake of the church, for the body of Christ. Was Paul not a Christian? If God only wants to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise, then Paul was no follower of Jesus. He suffered. And his suffering brought about good, just like all of the apostles, just like Jesus himself. Now this last thought, and this is where I go crazy. (laughs) This last thought goes against the common teaching of the world too. How many of you have thought or have heard, how can a good, omnipotent, that means all-powerful God, allow evil to exist? For if he was good... He wouldn't allow evil to exist. If he were omnipotent, then he would do something about it. Therefore, God does not exist. Have any of you heard that? I have. I've heard it. That is a common thought among individuals. It's a popular thought. I will tell you, be warned of this thought. It is a philosophical statement which may lead you astray. Be warned. But then the question is, What is the Christian teaching in response to this? Do we just accept the fact that evil is the hardest argument to go against (laughs) for the existence of a good God? Because it is. (laughs) I'll give you that. It's the hardest argument. Well, we do have a response, though. And the first point is, the biggest problem with evil lies in human responsibility and our freedom of will to bind ourselves to evil. God created us with free will. We have abused it and see the ramification of such abuses. Now the second point is where there is no reason to believe that an act of evil cannot be used by God under or in such a world in which human freedom exists to bring about ultimately good. Some will say, how can God possibly bring about good out of evil? Our response, Jesus Christ. The mystery of the gospel. Consider it. The greatest, darkest act humanity has ever done is what was done to Jesus. He was unjustly condemned at the hands of sinful men who cursed him by nailing him to a cross despite having been truly just. 
If one believes that nothing good can come from something evil, then I would argue you don't understand the gospel. For it was through this act of evil that God brought about his greatest redemption and ultimately the greatest good. Thus, as Christians, we can be like Paul. We can look at afflictions and recognize, even if we do not understand where the good will eventually be seen, we know that it will be seen. And that maybe, generations from now, the evil done to me today may cause tremendous amount of good then. Maybe the evil done to me today may even cause a great amount of good tomorrow. Or maybe even a greater good than what would be considered just good. I'll tell you guys that story again. I remember that one time when I was working at Acorn and uh, and there was that one customer who was a friend of the manager who was just atrocious <laughs> and um, make fun of everybody. And, you know, one time he goes to the back with the manager and then I had a question. I was working there, so I went and said, I was going to ask my manager a question. As soon as I said, hey, manager name, the dude slaps me across the face, just slaps me. Remember that story? I don't know if you remember. Anyway, the point is that happened to me once. <laughs> and what I did in response, turned around, walked away. Didn't do anything. Um, but then do you remember what happened to the individual by any chance? How eventually he got in trouble with the law. And how everyone was talking about it. And how he came up to the register with his drink and was expecting me to say something in response because, let's be real, he's caused me a bit of annoyances. <laughs> Instead, I simply said, I'm sorry this happened to you and I hope it gets better soon. That's it. Didn't rail on him, didn't do anything. Evil done before could have caused a very different reaction in me. If it weren't for Christ, I could have just went at him. <laughs> could have mocked him for his failure, for his hardship. Instead, I showed an act of grace and mercy. Would that act of grace and mercy be as significant if the evil done in the past had not been done? I am sure that the act of grace and mercy would have been significant regardless. But because of what he had done, the evil he had manifested, the good that was given in response was all the greater. Because I had just cause. <laughs> the warning is there. There will be those who say God doesn't exist because of evil. The teaching is, evil does not negate God's existence. And in fact, God has shown to use evil done in one time to bring about a restoration for many. The ramification of what Jesus had done 2,000 years ago still rings true today. You don't think God can use one act of evil and cause change generations later? Look to Jesus, and you can see how it can be done. So all of this is to remind us that warnings and teachings are necessary. It is necessary for us to warn each other, to teach each other. It is necessary for the church to be a place where false teachers are warned against and good, sound teachings are brought forth for the betterment of the kingdom of God through each of us. Planiga, on behalf of Christian scholarship, that's what he argued for, and I agree with him, we need Christians to be involved in scholarship, but we also need our congregations to be places of learning. And the reason why I say that is because of what Paul says. He says, Him we proclaim, Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom 
that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We must do the same as Paul. And we must rejoice over the fact that in a world full of lies and deceit and false teaching, God delivers truth and teaches us the truth through his word, the mystery of gospel, Jesus Christ. Now, normally I would have ended there, (laughs) but then I kept going because who knows why. So we'll see how this goes too. Uh, One final thing about all this, and I think we should always continue to pray then for our teachers especially. Consider the last thing Paul says in today's verses. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It's a toil (laughs) to be a teacher, to proclaim the truth of the gospel, to warn and to teach. Teachers suffer greater condemnation according to James. So pray for our teachers that they would be given this energy that works within them, this energy which is from God. For apart from God, it would not be possible for us to contend against the false teachings which rise against us. I've shared this before, but I do think a false teaching, another false teaching we see concerns church growth. I blame Betsy for this last point. <laughs> she sent me an email. <laughs> um, And it is one which, in my opinion, pastors struggle with the most. The false teaching is that growth is defined by how many people you have in your congregation. So you have these church growth formulas that say, this church grew from 100 members to 2,500 members because they followed this formula. Yet that is not what the church is about. It isn't trying to bring people in in order to continue the ministry or to cause this numerical kind of growth. True growth comes from God. The church's responsibility is to simply make our congregations a place where growth is most likely to occur. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, one plants, one waters, but God provides the growth. The best congregations which cause growth will be those who diligently plant and water and prune. When we allow a different understanding of growth, when we believe in formulas rather than God, then we have begun to believe a false teaching about growth, and we must be cautious. For this, pray for your pastors and teachers and academics. From a personal level, it is a great temptation to change what God has called us to be in order to bring about a growth which makes the church look more like a business rather than the body of Jesus Christ contending against darkness. The temptation is always there. So pray for God's grace, that those who are in positions of leadership would continue to toil rightly with the grace of the energy of God which works powerfully within each of us, that they and each of us would be reminded that the true power is found in the truth of the gospel of Jesus, this mystery revealed, and that power is far greater to bring about true growth. All right. Um, So I apologize. (laughs) We're going to come down now. (laughs) All right, so the gospel. You know, I do think that we've seen the gospel even today (laughs) in these passages. Um, We see the gospel in many ways throughout all of Paul's writing because Paul could not escape the gospel. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful news? (laughs) It should be for all of us. Um, The gospel is something which is truly marvelous. It is truly wonderful. Now, today we didn't talk about origins, but just as a brief overview... God created everything. 
And Christ was preeminent above all things. And that ultimately, he created human beings to be in his image. And that means that you can love, you can have reason, you can have morality, you can have debates, <laughs> you can have um, communication. And all of these other wonderful attributes, because God created you in his image. And he loves. And he communicates. And he has wisdom. And he has uh, reason. And so do we. And last of all, that leads us to come to the conclusion that because we're created in the image of God, all humanity has, um, is, uh, has worth, and ultimately every person has worth. <laughs> and all the other ones that I always mention that I forget today. <laughs> it's good for me to step away. <laughs> but that also leads us to another fact, and that's the fall. And the fall is something that we did talk about a little bit today. Um, and the simple fact is that because we're created in the image of God, we also have the choice of freedom of will, that you can choose to follow after God or you could choose not to. That humanity had that choice in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. And guess what happened? We chose with our freedoms to not follow after God, and all humanity followed suit. And because of that, whenever we sin, whenever we break away from God, we have this great moral debt that keeps on building up against us. And so the question is, what can we do about this? Paul has argued, we can't do anything about it. Um, We need something else. And that's what we found today in the redemption of Jesus Christ. Through his sacrifice on the cross, through his suffering, ultimately we can find redemption. And we find redemption through faith and through repentance. Repentance, turning away from our sin and living a lifestyle which is pleasing to God, having faith in Christ that he is all sufficient. That means that I don't have to toil for atonement. I toil for the glory of God. (laughs) Um, It means that you don't have to worry about uh, doing as many good deeds as possible because you're saved through Jesus. And that's wonderful. And guess what? That redemption isn't just about humanity. Guess what? It's everything that we touch too. So that means that Christ redeems cultures. He redeems uh, sciences. He He redeems psychology. He redeems all of these works of scholarship that we keep on fighting against. We say, you know what? God can redeem even that. I think our people today that we would say, uh, are scientists. (laughs) Tell me it's not true. (laughs) But that's the truth, is that, you know what? Redemption is found in Jesus Christ. And we've received that glory, and it's awesome. And then that, of course, leads to the future, glorification. Paul didn't really talk about it today, but it's there. And that is that if we are in Christ, we share in his resurrection. That we don't taste death ever again. That the second death does not apply to you. When you're raised into eternal glory, you're raised just like Christ was. Forever and ever. My hope is that we would take what Paul says seriously. That we would take the warnings seriously. The teachings seriously. There's a lot there to unpack. A lot in the gospel. A lot in the scriptures. We only went over five verses today. It took me eight pages. <laughs> There's a lot there. And God's continuing to teach us, each of us. And it's awesome. And I think that we should continue and we should continue to pray for one another that God would continue to regenerate and redeem our minds for his glory in our hearts. And it's with that that I ask that we close in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for generations 
of believers who have continued to proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even when it was unpopular. For generations of believers who have continued to seek out your will in their lives, who have continued to seek you and warn others about what is false and to teach what is right. And Lord, we ask that you would continue that here. That we would be warned of false teachings and that then we would go and learn true and good sound teaching. And then that way too, Lord, we can be a better light to our society, which is so much in darkness, which so easily takes what is false and clings to it. Lord, you have made it so that we are your body. Let us act like it and continue to seek out your will as a church, together corporately and individually. We thank you. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn, Amazing Grace.